episode 41 of How to Keep Your Money. I'm Caroline Garnham of Garnham Family Office Services, private client lawyers and specialists in setting up and maintaining family offices and finding solutions for clients. I'm also the founder of Caroline's Club, uh, a club of private client professionals where networking really works. Today, I'm joined remotely by Franco Lombardo of Veritage, who has spent 20 years as a family business advisor and has worked with some of the most successful and influential families in the world. He's also a much sought after speaker and author of five books. His latest book, Safe Space, Governance in Action. Franco, it's an honor to interview you today. Tell me, what is your background and how did you become a family office business advisor, Franco? Caroline, first of all, thanks for having me on your show. Uh, it's a real honor to be here to serve you and your networks. So I started out in the investment management business, and I was really good at it, built a very successful practice, large book of business. And then one day I realized that the more money I was making, the more unhappy and unfulfilled and arrogant I was becoming. And I thought to myself, this can't be right. You know, more money means more arrogance. There's got to be a, uh, a mix-up in the equation here. So I hired a coach who I still work with to this day, and he helped me understand that I was more fascinated by the emotional side of wealth than the actual management of it. And that's what's launched uh, the business into what I do today. How interesting. Um, tell me a bit more about what you mean about the emotional side of the, of the business. Tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, so, you know, we tend to forget when I say we, I mean family businesses, family offices themselves, advisors that serve them, that these entities are made up of human beings. And they're not files and they're not businesses themselves. They're, they're made up of individuals and human beings. And these human beings have these funny thing called feelings. And feelings are irrational. They come out of nowhere and they're highly emotional. And when a human being is being emotional, that gets in the way of sound business and ownership decision-making. So one of the things that I realized was that most successful family-owned businesses and family offices have traditional governance in place, which is policies and procedures for business and ownership decision-making. What they don't have in place is what I call emotional governance, which is basically how do we as human beings agree to behave and treat each other before we go, before we throw in the complexities of owners and shareholders and siblings and so on. That's very fascinating, Franco. I've, I've, I've got a matter on my desk where the founder of a successful business empire has had children through several relationships. Uh, but in essence, one half is greedy and self-serving and will destroy the business. And the other half is hardworking and selfless and wants to build the business. Where would you start with this scenario where their, where their attitudes are poles apart? Well, the first thing that I would do would I would start by interviewing each participant in the family, you know, getting their perspective because everybody has a perspective on things. You know, someone may, may view someone as entitled, yet they don't see themselves entitled. They see themselves as contributing. So it's important that, we, that I get a clear understanding of what the current reality is from everybody's perspective what their desired reality is, and then to take a look at what the gaps and issues are. And then from there, we can start to explore if we can serve the family at all. So the very first thing that we do is we um, will prepare a report 
that basically says, you know, here's the family's perspective on the current reality, the desired reality, here's the gaps, here's the issues as we see them. And we present that report at an education day where we spend time educating the family what it means to be part of a family business or a family office. Because it never ceases to amaze me, Caroline, how many large families, and I mean billionaire families, have never seen the three-circle model of family business. So it starts with education. Very interesting. Um, and, and presumably, there's, a, there's, a, there's an optimum timing to start the work that you do. Presumably, when, when they feel that they are entitled or a dispute starts, that's probably a bit too late. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so you know we've got we've got two two camps. We have the first camp, which is the families that realize that there's issues coming down the pipe, so they're pre they're preemptive. They start thinking about the future and say, how can we prevent some of these tragedies that are statistics from a lot of families? That's camp number one. And then in that camp is you know the founder that says, you know, I know I need to let go one day, um, emotionally and from a ownership and operational perspective. And we need to develop the next generation. And I don't know how to do that. And I don't know how to pick which one of the kids or cousins is the right person. So we get involved in developing the next gen from an emotional perspective. That's camp number one. Camp number two is, you know, we have some conflict. We have some conflict in the family and we would like that resolved. And what's fascinating is that a lot of our clients will come, a lot of our families will come to us from the next generation, right? So they're saying, um, you know, mom or dad wants to let go, they don't know how to, um, I'm one of four siblings, we don't know how to pick the next leader, can you come in and help us? But presumably, um, this sort of conversation should happen before the founder has passed away, which is probably when it gets a bit more complicated to get them around the table. Is that what you find? Absolutely, because you know one of the, one of the, one of the challenges that human beings have is we make assumptions. Right? We're very unclear in our communication. And I'm going to give you a classic, unclear statement in family-owned business. You know, Caroline, Deborah, one day this will all be yours. Well, what's one day, what's this, and what's yours? So by able to work with the founder and their spouse and the next generation, we're able to get clarity from everybody's expectations and intentions and desires. So there's no misinterpretations. Because a lot of confusion arises from misplaced expectations. This is what I've seen. And if there is lack of clarity and lack of someone guiding them towards that clarity, those they're, they're talking, family members are talking across purposes. Yes, yes. You know, so there, there's a tool that I use. Uh, and if you listeners are listening, you may want to write this down. So the first uh, word is desires. And then beneath that, write the word expectations and then resentments, and then judgments, and then punishments. And this is a script that we all play as human beings. You know, we have an uncommunicated desire. So let's say Caroline is a director of a play, and you've got some roles you want to sign. So let's say that, you know, to Franco, you sign the role of a six-foot-eight African-American quarterback. And then to Deborah, you know, your assistant, you assign the role of a four-foot-eleven Taiwanese uh, dancer. But we're not behaving based on these roles. You have an uncommunicated desire. So when your desires aren't met, you have these expectations of us to behaving a certain way, which leads to resentments, you see? Uh, and then you start judging. You see, I can't depend on them. I can't trust them. They're nothing what I say. And then we ultimately punish. And the last, the last um, word on this program is litigation. 
And it all starts from uncommunicated desires. Mm. Um, you talk about something which I haven't heard about before, which is absolutely fascinating, safe space for families and ensuring the legacy of family businesses. Tell me more about your work towards harmonious families, accountable leadership, responsible owners of business, and of course your latest book, Safe Space, Governance in Action. So that book was born out of my own journey as a child and not feeling safe. I had a whole bunch of events that occurred to me where I never, I, I rarely felt safe as a child. And as I started to work with families of affluence and business owning families, what I realized was that the family members within those families didn't feel emotionally safe with each other. They wanted to have conversations. They wanted to get honest with each other. And yet they didn't feel they could because they didn't feel emotionally safe. They either felt that they're going to be judged, made wrong, criticized, ridiculed, or it could be used against them. So the whole idea of safe space was a concept that I created around creating emotional safety or what I call holding space for another, for them to share what's really going on for them. Because one of the things that, that families come to me say, we want to improve communication. We want to have better communication. And again, that's a very vague statement. You know, what are they saying? You know, do they want to speak in a different language? Do they want to text? Do they want to communicate via fax? What they're really saying is I want to feel comfortable and emotionally safe to be able to talk to my sibling or parents around what's really happening for me. What a fascinating concept. Uh, I really like the idea of a safe space uh, because having worked with many, many families over several decades, you know, very often it is this lack of communication which, which gives rise over years and years and years to litigation, which I'm sure we'll come on to in a, in a, in a moment or two. Um, you believe that there is a universal connection between people's relationship with money, which you call money motto, and the impact this has on the relationship with family business and legacy. Tell me a little bit more about this. Sure. So this was my second book many, many years ago. And um, one of the things that I realized is that we all have subconscious beliefs about many things. So we have beliefs about men, women, God, sex, power, and we have one around money. And these beliefs are born from childhood experiences. So an event occurs, uh, we'll make a decision about how we feel about money. And what I found fascinating uh, in my wealth management career was that the industry, by that I mean legal, accounting, investment management, and families of wealth, tend to focus on the how side of money. How do we create it? How do we grow it? How do we invest it? How do we transition? I don't recall having a conversation or hearing a conversation at the time about how do we feel about money? Why do we make decisions? Why do we make the emotional decisions we do around money? So the concept of a money model is an individual subconscious belief about money. And because we're all relational beings, we take our money model into relationships. Now, everybody has a very specific money model to them. So, for example, my money model used to be, because it changes, my money model used to be money allows me to fit in. Because I never felt that I fit in. I was always told I was born on the wrong side of the tracks. So I made the subconscious decision that if I make a lot of money, then I'll buy my way in and people will love me. Hence the wealth management career. And in the work that I do in my private practice with clients and research that I conducted, um, I had a simple question. And the question was, is there connection or correlation between how one treats their money or how one does money and how they treat their relationships and how they do their relationships? 
and the one that discovers it, the directly correlate. So how one treats their money is exactly how one treats their relationships. Um, I think there's touching on something very interesting, Franco, there. Um, I would have thought it's also to do with people's insecurities. You said about, you know, you can buy your way into relationships and people will, will feel good about you. Um, do, you th do you think there's a lot of people who feel that if they have money, they will feel more secure about themselves and people will treat them slightly better? Um, explore that, that for me a bit. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm going to say something here that's going to probably uh, anger a few people and maybe offend a few people. Uh, and this is my truth, so it doesn't necessarily mean it's the truth. It's what I believe. I believe one of the drivers of very successful entrepreneurs is their insecurity, right? They feel, they believe that when they achieve a certain level of wealth, a certain level of status, that childhood insecurity is going to disappear. And it, that's what I call the illusion of safety, which I write about in the book, is we think that once we've got these things, we're going to feel emotionally safe. And we'll never feel emotionally safe until we've done the work around what created the unsafety in the first place, right? So like my dog, like, like my personal mentor, and he's the guy you should have on your show, by the way, Dov Barron says, trauma is not born from an event. Trauma is born from not allowing ourselves to feel the feelings as a result of that event. So until we heal that emotional peace, we're always going to carry that trauma with us. And in West, and, and it seems like because we societally reward and look up to people of affluence, we even have lists of the wealthiest people, we assume that they're highly secure, emotionally. And in, a, in many cases, they're not. Now, it doesn't make them bad people. It doesn't make them weak. It just makes them human beings. Mm. Ironically, I've found, um, I've had the great fortune of dealing with some families over a very long period of time. And seeing their their growth and their empire build, business empire build, and, and according to their wealth wealth build, what I find very often is that their insecurities just get worse um, because people know who they are. They 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 feel as if their privacy is invaded. Uh, wealth brings with it a lot of other issues, which actually make that basic insecurity even worse rather than better. Have you found that as well? That's absolutely true, Caroline, right? So wealth magnifies who someone is at their core, right? If they're, if they're if, if at their core emotionally, they're generous and kind, it will magnify that. If they're the opposite, it'll magnify that as well, right? Mm -hmm. Now, in the, I would just want to talk back, touch back. So the research that I did was, is there connection or correlation how we treat our money, how we treat our relationships? And what I realized is that there's four categories. So there's... There is the investor, the individual that will invest their money. They will also invest in their relationships. They know that one day they'll get a dividend. The flip side of that is the spender, where they will spend their money and they will emotionally spend their relationship. They'll deplete their relationships emotionally. There's a subcategory to that, which is the self-spender. So they take, they, they spend of themselves, they give away of themselves, and then there's nothing left for them. And then they're being angry at others. Because they say, well, I'm doing things for you, but in reality, they're a martyr. The third, ca third category is the value or respecter. This is the individual that looks after their possessions and they treasure and look after their relationships. And the last category is the fear, the one that's afraid. So they don't believe they deserve it. 
they subconsciously don't believe they deserve the good fortune of financial wealth or relational wealth. So at some point, they're self-sabotage. Wow. Fascinating. Um, you're also co-creator and one of the leading facilitators of the Scone Project. Scone Project, I don't know which one you call it. Scone. Scone. Scone Project. I got that totally wrong. And Maasai okay. Project. Yes. This is an annual invitation only experiential and interactive next generation leadership development program for business owning families. What does this pro program cover and do you have any testimonials about the program, Franco? Yeah, so so I'll give you the, the, the background of it. Um, about six or seven years ago, I had the privilege and honor of meeting um, a young man at the time in New York City and comes from a very affluent and well-known family in Europe. And uh, he said to me that he was had the challenges he was having was that his demographic, uh, being that next that next gen demographic, um, have some issues that they have that they have no one to talk to. You know, um, you know the real deep rooted emotional stuff. And there's a whole bunch of uh, conferences and programs out there that equip the next generation intellectually and from an investment perspective, social impact impact social impact investing perspective, philanthropy. But there's nothing out there that equips them on how to handle the pressure of wealth. Because as he says, privilege can crush. I just love that line, privilege can crush. So he asked me to develop at the time a five-day experiential program where we allowed the participants to not just talk about concepts of leadership, but actually to experience what it means to be a leader in a live setting, and then to be able to look at themselves and be brief. Well, Here's, how I, here's why I made that decision. Here's why that decision failed. So we play a whole bunch of games that are experiential in nature. Because one of the ways adults learn, the quickest way we learn is by playing games and experiencing things. So that was the start of the Schoon Project. And then a colleague and friend of mine, uh, who was our closing keynote speaker that night, said, you know, I'd like to offer you my venues, which happened to be in Kenya, India, and Ecuador, and we can expand on this program. So we ran a Maasai project where we invited 18 next-gen family members from across the globe, took them down to the Maasai Mara. Uh, the Maasai Warriors were my co-facilitators. Uh, we, uh, we ran a module called the Resource Game where we helped them understand by carrying water for a mama for a kilometer and a half on your head, uh, what it means to have resources and the responsibility associated with it. And again, that was a transformative experience for a lot of participants. So from that, I have co-created a program with my colleague, Dr. Roshni Daya, a five-year uh, next-gen, or what we call Family Readiness Academy program, where we go to five different countries over a five-year period, and each um, module has a specific purpose and learning with it. So for example, in Kenya, where we start, we talk about identifying one's biggest fear and how to, how to overcome it. The next module is in Ecuador, where we talk about integrity. And then we go to India for compassion. We go to school about purpose. And then finally, we end up in the South Island of New Zealand with the Maori talking about legacy. Mm, absolutely fascinating. I'm not sure about walking for a kilometer and a plus with a, a bucket of water on my head. I'm not sure I'd be very good at that. A little bit about you, Franco. You live in Canada and you spend time in Bermuda and you travel extensively. 
As a sought-after international speaker at the Milken Institute, STEP, Camden Wealth, as well as on television and on radio, you must spend a lot of your time working. Tell me a little bit about the man behind the mission. Do you work to live or do you live to work? Franco. I love that question. Uh, so I used to live in Canada and I recently moved to Bermuda and that was a lifestyle choice. And this will, this will be part of the answer is um, pre-COVID, I was traveling almost 300 days a year uh, because my clients are all over the world. And I remember uh, one holiday season thinking to myself, you know, I'm going to take my kids to Buenos Aires because I had all these points. And the thought of coming back on a Sunday and getting on a plane on a Monday to go to work wasn't very appealing to me. So I thought to myself, I want my home to be my holiday. So that way, when I travel, I'm always coming back to my home, which is a holiday. And so I work to live. And I love what I do. You know, I had, I had a, a, I was sharing with Deborah earlier that yesterday was a coaching day. And I had two amazing coaching sessions that really, really reminded me of why I do what I do. You know, I ran a family, uh, a shareholders meeting for four shareholders, of which the father and son are on that group. And it was really amazing to watch what could have been a potentially uh, negative conversation between a father and son turn into a deep, loving, much um, lo loving and connected conversation as a result of the tools we're using with these families. And then in another case, I had a, you know, a very um, macho type man from uh, the Southern Hemisphere share some challenges he had as a childhood that he never shared. And to get really connected with the feelings and to understand why feelings are so important. And his commitment was to go and share that with his wife right away. And I shared with him, I said, you know what, when you start to cry, ask your wife to hold you. Because that's important that she see you as a man in that perspective. And, you know, Caroline, that's why I do what I do, because my personal purpose is to create a safer world. Because as I said earlier, I never felt safe as a child. I rarely felt safe as a child. And the medium I choose to do through is family-owned businesses. And the only way family members are going to feel safe with each other is when they start to feel safe within themselves. So when we feel safe with ourselves, uh, we can have what I call relational conversations where we feel safe with each other. And then we can start to create familial safety and then cultural safety with our businesses. And then together we can create a safer world. So that's, that's the mission. That's why I do what I do. And yesterday was just a great example of reminding me why I do what I do. Franco, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you today. And as usual, I've learned an awful lot. Um, there are many families, rich and poor, who are at loggerheads with each other, who cannot bear to be in the same room. They make themselves sick with anger and hatred, envy and jealousy. Uh, I've seen mothers that can't share Christmas or, or any other celebration with each other because the children are at loggerheads. Your work is pioneering and through Caroline's Club where networking works, we hope to promote what you do for business owning families across the globe and especially those who really need it. Franco, thank you, thank you for joining us and it's been a real privilege.